Thank you, Olivia. Well, good morning. Anyway, my hats are off to the, the weeding party that the youth and the young adults had out here this week. The place looks immaculate. Next time you should maybe give invitations to others to join all the fun. Getting out there in the lead. But no, it looks great. And uh, thanks to Francis Gilmore who had something to do with killing the weeds in the parking lot, all the grass and everything. So it was so nice to drive up here this morning and see the place look so good. And, of course, always hats off to the guys who keep the grounds, keep the grass cut. There's a lot of activity out here um, during the week. It takes a lot to make things look this nice, and we just show up and enjoy it. So thanks, guys, and praise the Lord for that. And then I'm also looking forward to, um, if I'm correct, the guys' retreat. uh, Noah, they're going to share right after the sermon. So look forward to hearing that. Well, in uh, in Chapter 8, we're in the book of... Revelation, and uh, we will be in chapter 9 this morning, but in chapter 8, after much much anticipation, we finally got to see the last, the seventh seal opened, only to find that within that seal are seven more judgments, and they are in the form of the trumpet blasts. So at the blast of each trumpet, it unleashes another judgment. So that seventh unleashed another seven judgments. The seven judgments of the trumpet blasts eventually will release the seven judgments of the bowls in chapter 15. So it's judgments in the form of sevens here. And chapter 8 described the first four judgments of the trumpet blasts and it had a lot to do with... Um, God's wrath falling upon the earth or sent down to the earth in the form of of natural disasters, um, hurricanes, high winds, a lot of destruction, earthquakes, but also the skies being darkened, a third of the sun and a third of the moon. And so it was a cataclysmic experience here, of course, all symbolically of the judgment that takes place on earth. Things change a little bit in chapter um, 9. And rather than just continuing on with the judgments, there's a pause, if you will, where we are offered yet another warning in the form of three woes. So as if the judgments of the four trumpets weren't enough, before we can get on to the fifth, there's like another siren goes off just to warn us how bad things will get. And this takes us to a new level of disaster. I saved the last verse of chapter 8 last time so we can begin with it this morning. So, chapter 8, the book of Revelation, verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So, before the fifth one is blown, God sends an eagle with the woe, woe, woe. And it's just a further sign of the judgment that is going to be taking place will be even more harsh than what we saw. Because now, as we will see this morning, we kind of transfer from natural disasters to the demonic forces, to spiritual combat. 
uh, to Satan and his minions and what they have to do on this earth as a form of judgment. And it's all written in apocalyptic language, which is to shock us. It's kind of over the top uh, ways of formulating ideas and concepts to get our attention. But it's needed. These kind of warnings, these kind of woes, they're needed because God takes sin serious. He, he takes judgment serious. He takes righteousness and He takes justice serious. So we have an eagle. And of course the eagle's loud. Almost everything in heaven that happens there is loud. And I'm sure you realize that eagles, as beautiful and majestic as they are, they don't speak. But this one speaks with a loud voice. Of course this is all symbolic perhaps loud, to warn those that have not yet repented and have not yet trusted in Christ, to warn those of the judgment to come so that they have an opportunity to repent. I so much appreciate God in that He has fire alarms, if you will. And that if you, at the scent of smoke or the smoke of judgment, the alarm goes off and it gives us an opportunity. Okay, the house is burning down. What am I going to do with this? Am I going to flee so that I can live to see another day? Or am I just going to withstand this tragedy? So these woes are kind of like fire alarms, if you will. To give people an opportunity to repent and therefore live. Ezekiel 18.32, the Lord says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. It's an invitation, the olive branch, always to unrepentant sinners. The eagle, again, a majestic bird. And uh, if, you, if you've seen it, it's a rare sight. It used to be a rare sight to see an eagle around here. They're becoming more plentiful. But they're also birds uh, that eat carrion and game. They, they get hungry too. And they eat. And so the, the woes here is like this warning from the eagle that I'll have plenty to eat, plenty to feast on for those that do not heed the warning of the Lord. Now notice that who he's addressing in this text. It's those who dwell on earth. And this becomes an interesting phrase in the book of Revelation that you'll see again. Because now there's been a little bit of a transition that takes place. There's more people on earth, everybody's on earth in, in, in this sense as far as believers and unbelievers. But this phrase, those who dwell on earth or earth dwellers, becomes a phrase to identify specifically those who do not repent. Now all of a sudden they're called earth dwellers. And the idea is that they're the ones that refuse to let go of their, their, their uh, grasp of the world and the earth. They want their kingdom. They want the things here. They don't want God. They're not interested in God. And so they would rather... Um, invest all that they have and in, in a sense die on the earth than repent and live and believe in Christ. So they're called earth dwellers because that's what they're interested in and that's what they invest in and that's what they cling to. So what we find in this chapter is, is the ruinous objectives of evil. You know, we're aware of Satan, we're aware of evil as believers, and it doesn't take you long if you read Scripture to find out about the demonic forces, to find out about our enemies. They're, it's not bad enough that we have a sin nature, but we also have 
beings that are playing us, that are luring us and tempting us. And we get a picture of the ruinous objective and the evil um, intent of demonic powers in this chapter. Uh, They plague us. They plague us psychologically, spiritually, physically. Any way that they can get into our nature and our being, they desire to create havoc and disaster. So I'm just going to read the first six verses. We will cover 12, but I want to read the first six verses to get us started as we read about these demonic forces. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit. And from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. And they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of any, uh, not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it, they will long to die, but death will flee from them. So these woes, just the first woe takes up the first 12 verses of Revelation, uh, of this chapter. That's a lot of real estate, scriptural real estate spent on describing this. And it's possible that some or all of these trumpet blasts were concurrent. In other words, there could be things going on in earth Uh, with uh, war from the nature aspect, but also from the demonic. It could be one or the other, both at the same time. So whereas the first four unleashed the wrath on nature, these woes release plagues in the form of demonic forces with Satan at the head. And John is very explicit what we can expect with these kind of attacks, and that is, torment and they're not to destroy as locusts would do in real life they're not to destroy the grass and the leaves and so forth but they are they want to eat people they want to destroy and bring an end to people and so they're tormenting people and the people are suffering but death eludes them they they can't die god does not give permission to these demons to take life only to torment life So before we go any further, I just want to reiterate that I do not, my approach to Revelation is not to take a a, a wrath or a plague and attach it to a specific period in history. There are those that do that, and and plagues and disasters are uh, biblically important. They do have significance to them, but I'm not going to try to match up, you know, when, when did this happen with what year and what war represents this and what plague, so forth. But I, but what I do want to reiterate is that though I believe this is symbolism it's symbolic of something terrible so just because this may not we may not uh, see creatures that look like these locusts with with breastplates and tails with scorpions and so forth 
We, I don't expect to wake up one morning and see this. But what I expect to see, if that's symbolic, then it means evil in forms that perhaps we are, have not experienced yet. Now, we're familiar with the demonic. We know what it's like to be attacked. We know what it's like to be harassed. We know what it's like to have our minds and our thoughts plagued to where it feels like sometimes Satan's holding us underwater and we can't get up for, for a breath and we're just pleading to God in this circumstance or this stage of life. Lord, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. We understand this. This is symbolic for what Satan really does in the lives of people. And in this case, unbelievers. So let's unpack this. Verse 1, the fifth angel blew, blew his trumpet. I saw a star that had fallen out of the sky to the earth. And it was given the key to the pit of the abyss. Uh, so what is this star? Again, it's symbolic. It's not a star at all. As a matter of fact, this star turns out um, to have characteristics of a living, conscious, thinking, willful being. Uh, this star actually is given a key by God. This star knows what to do with this key. This star once occupied a place in the heavens, but has now been sent to the earth, more specifically into this dark pit of the abyss. It's a, it's a rational being, not a twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder how you are. Most interpreters agree that this star or this symbol represents Satan. It represents Satan being cast out of the heavens and cast down onto the earth. He's being given access to this dark pit, to this dark abyss. And so John says the star has fallen. It had fallen. So he's referring to something in the past, which means... This is symbolic of something that has already transpired, at least this part, where Satan has been cast to the earth. Jesus says in Luke 10.18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In John 12.9, he writes, And Satan was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. This will become even clearer in chapter 16, where we see Satan on his throne so he's fallen to the earth he is plunged into darkness plunged into the abyss and he has the keys he's been given the keys by God to this place and he aims to destroy the scripture teaches us his motive and what he desires to do he wants to steal he wants to rob he wants to destroy he wants to kill he wants to fight against or destroy the kingdom of God because he's an evil being. He's jealous. He's prideful. He doesn't want, you know, evil. He's, evil is so seeped in him, he cannot rejoice in the good of anything or anything else or any being. He wants it all for himself. So he's fallen here. And he is called, as we will read shortly in verse 11, he's given a name, Abaddon in the Hebrew and Apollyon in the Greek, which is destroyer. So he is the destroyer. If you ever wonder what does he want to do, what is he all about? He is a destroyer of the things of God. So are you, if you are about the things of God, he wants to destroy you. So John tells us that this key has been given. 
Though Satan is not so powerful that he has access to every room, every caveat, every place. He ha- he's, he's, ref- uh, he's limited to realms. He's limited in powers. He's limited in the evil that he can cause in the earth. He's limited in what he can do. And it has to be granted to him. We saw a little bit of this last week and then Corky's message on Job where all the angels, even the uh, demons, they report to God because God's a sovereign God. It's not a dualistic universe where evil and good are fighting. It's half and half and they're equal powers and sometimes evil's winning and sometimes good's winning. God always wins. Uh, We sang the song this morning, It is finished. God is so powerful and so confident That he doesn't have to wait for the reality of the end. He already knows that what he has accomplished in Christ in history is finished. The battle is complete. Now it's just being unwound or or played out, if you will. So all of the events that take place in Revelation, things that we haven't even read about, we want to understand that God is still on the throne. Remember in chapter 4 that all the commands of Revelation come from the command center. The throne room of God. So as terrifying as this is, we, we don't ever want to get the, uh, the picture that God's losing control. Like this is exactly the opposite of that. God is perfectly in control, even of the dark pit, even the abyss. So he has granted this key to the destroyer. He allows these things. He allows evil spirits temporary reign. But it is always to fulfill his good will. And we are also reminded in our worship time, time this morning that God does everything for his good pleasure. He's God. He has a plan, but it is all for the good. So he, there's evil in this world, and I'm glad that God has his hand on it. Because we can't control it. We can't even control the evil in our own hearts. We need God's help for that. So this is a comfort to me that he at times under his control gives the enemy our enemy uh, powers only to fulfill God's divine purpose so as puzzling as that may be it also brings comfort verse 2 he opened the pit of the abyss and smoke from the pit went up as smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit so the abyss, primarily in the New Testament, refers to the abode of the spirits. It's, you know, it's where uh, evil, um, evil powers, evil beings like to hang out. It's always in the darkness. They don't like the light. They don't like uh, vulnerability and full disclosure. It's all about the sneaky stuff behind the scenes. And so the darker for these powers, the better. And it can also uh, eventually... In, in concurrently refer to a hell. You know, the hell is referred to as the darkness or the lake of fire where, where, where there's this just smoke that goes up. It's a constant burning. And the demons are aware of what's going on. Satan understands. And they understand their place before God as well. <clears throat> so in Luke chapter 8.31, when Jesus was... Uh, delivering a demon-possessed man, the demons in him spoke to Jesus and 
It says they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. So they know their fate is eventually to be stuck in the darkness, to be stuck in the, the shaft where there is absolutely no escape. And they will not be tormentors, but they will be tormented in this. And they're aware of that and they beg for, I hope it's not time for that for me. Now this whole idea of a pit and darkness and, and lava-like fire coming up and it's so intense that it fills the sky with smoke. Now we have a little bit of haze, right, from the fires in, from up north in Canada. And every once in a while you look out and you can hardly see all the way across the field. This is way worse than that. So you are at an advantage, a great advantage, if you were fortunate enough to watch The Lord of the Rings. Because we are talking about Mount Doom and mortar. Uh, what is it again? Yeah, mortar. So anyway, the movie does a great job at depicting, it's almost like right out of this chapter because you have the intense heat, uh, you have the hobbits uh, getting closer and the way they know, when, when they look in that direction, it's all dark, there's no pretty sunrises and so forth, it's dark, the vegetation is gone and it's the stench, even the stench uh, affects their demeanor and it gets in their nostrils and it's just like everything about it communicates Yuck! Why would anybody want to go near this place? Well, this place, it wasn't so much that they were going near it, but this place was coming near them. And that's what evil does. And the idea is that out of this shaft comes the smoke and the stench and all of this other things that accompany it in the abyss. It would make your lungs burn. And I think about this, you know, you get sucked into that scene, and, that, and yet the movie, I'm, hold on, I'm stuck in this movie for a second. You have that scene, but the movie starts out in the Shire. It's like the exact opposite. You have an abundance of vegetation, the little hobbits are doing their gardening, and they're having fun, reproducing, kids running around, everything, the sunshine, the sky's blue, they couldn't be happier, they're feasting and partying, and then you have this. This is the opposite of God's pure light. This is the opposite of God's plan and God's idea of goodness. So the, this is what we find in the darkness of the abyss. Simon Kistemacher says, Evil is like a dense cloud that turns the world into darkness and suffocates all those who, who are breathing its polluted air. But evil itself functions only with divine permission. It arises, increases, and opposes all that is true, pure, good, and admirable. Evil never succeeds in conquering God's kingdom because God not only permits but also controls its effect. It's beautifully written. So verse 3, Out of the smoke came forth the locusts, on the earth and power was given to them as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were not told to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or any tree except people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Let me just say real quick so um, you can understand the passage better. The, the locusts 
described here are more like grasshoppers. They're not like the little cicadas that we're used to with a locust plague. They're actually cicadas. So the locust, think of a, a devastating grasshopper uh, that comes in and they do eat. They ravage plants like this. This isn't, this isn't foreign to us if you've read your Bible. In Exodus chapter 10, you are familiar with the plagues. And one of the plagues that was sent by God. God unleashed the locusts in Egypt and they devastated all the green vegetation there. So these are the, the grasshoppers with the big mouths that never stop eating and the ravenous here. So they devoured everything growing in its path, all the fields, and that's the idea. But now it's not unleashed on the greenery or the vegetation. It's unleashed on a person, unleashed on that kind of evil and devastation, unleashed on human beings. Unleashed on minds and hearts and wills and emotions that wants to devastate and destroy and cause confusion and disaster. So there is no order, there's no promise, there's no predictability in life. But it's just chaos. They come from the abyss. And they are after those that do not, specifically that do not bear the seal of God. The seal of God, of course, is our confession of faith. The seal of God is our faith in Christ as our Savior. John, again, is reminding us here who's in control because constantly he's saying all of this is given to them. So they're only calling shots that they're allowed to call because God is the sovereign God. And this just relieves brings a lot of relief to me to know that even in our day and age, all of the evil, and, and time and time again, you just read headlines that are more and more depressing, and I remind myself, God is in control. It's not like he's been knocked off the throne. It's not like Satan is in charge. He's over Satan. This all plays a part in God's plan. It's still terrible, and it grieves my heart, but I have hope. Because my hope's in God and God is above all of the circumstances. He's above all the headlines and the things that we read about or experience today. Scorpions in real life. Now I learned something in this passage. Because um, sometimes we get educated by the movies or the media. So as a kid I watched a lot of westerns. Many as I could, could fit in. And in Westerns, when a scorpion bit you, you were doomed. Like that's the, whenever they had the scene where the scorpion's getting closer and all of a sudden somebody gets bitten or something like that, in the Westerns, they're doomed. Turns out in real life that most people uh, that have been bitten by a scorpion do not die. So they, they produce a tremendous a lot of pain. And it's, it's just like a terrible, terrible pain, so bad that they wish they could die. But it's not, for the most part, it's not going to kill them. I didn't know that. I thought you were a goner if you ever got bitten by a scorpion. Now, we had, um, I've had actually a little experience with scorpions, indirectly. I see a smile back there. So, when we went to Guatemala, we were warned that there's a lot of scorpions there. But they don't 
sting you near as badly as scorpions in other parts of the world that, that could potentially kill you. You actually don't die from these scorpions. They're pretty harmless. Uh, there was one unfortunate, unfortunate college student that apparently didn't get that memo because we were like in this clubhouse area hanging out and this poor college student got, got uh, lit up by a scorpion. And he was really scared. Uh, just absolutely, am I going to die? Like he's turning white, he's wondering, he's thinking, am I going to die? I got bit by a scorpion. Now fortunately, he turned to Dr. Wine for hope. Dr. Wine was there, and uh, now Dr. Wine, he doesn't know a lot about the scorpions in that day, but he said, you probably ought to lay down. I believe you directed him to the couch, if I remember right. Uh, but I think that was after. I don't know where all this, he, might, he may have gotten up again or something. No, before that happened, actually, before Dr. Wine got there, he was sitting at the table talking to everybody like, what do I do, what do I do? Fortunately, my daughter Jessica was there. And, and as he was passing out in fear, she was there not to catch him because she was there to get as far away from him as she could. So she didn't catch whatever it was that he had. So anyway, uh, I think Dr. Wine got him to the couch or something and was telling him he was going to be okay. That We were getting locals and getting advice and they're like, he's fine. His biggest problem is fear. He is going to be fine. There's nothing wrong with him physically. It's a little sting. He's just scared himself white and had passed out. So, scorpions. These demons are like scorpions. They can only harm those to whom God has given permission. Uh, they're dark. They strike in the darkness. They hurt. And um, they attack people who refuse to repent of their sin and believe in the gift of Christ and salvation. Verses 5 and 6, they were given power not to kill them, but to torture them for five months, and their torment was like the torment of scorpions. And then verse 6, and in those days people will seek death and not find it. They will long to die, and death flees from them. So just like we read in the book of Job, God limits them. He says, yes, you can do this, but you can't do that. You can torment, but you may not take their life. So it's not... It's not God, but Satan is responsible for the evil in this world. And in this case, God is using Satan uh, to punish the wicked, to punish the recalcitrant, to punish the, those that stubbornly refuse. They're the earth dwellers. Nope, I'm staying here. I like my life. I like my world. I don't want anything to do with you, and I refuse to repent and hail you as king. So demonic possession and influence uh, is out in a form of torture. It tortures human beings. There is a presence of dynamic, uh, demonic influence in this world. I never really understood it until I became a believer. From, fortunately, from a scriptural standpoint. But in Revelation, this kind of influence, it's always a result of divine judgment as an attempt to bring forth repentance so that people will not die forever or die eternally, but will come to Christ. The, uh, the, the fear and the torment that is received is received at an appointed time. 
Reminds me again in Luke chapter 8, 28, where the demon says, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. So you see that the demons, they know who's in charge and they know that their time is limited in the destruction that they can, they can uh, reap on people. This five months idea fortunately means it's not forever. It's just a limited amount of time. And so there's this torture. And again, I've been told that people that have been stung by or bitten by whatever it is, uh, the scorpions, they wish they could die because it's so painful. But they, they can't die because the poison is not of that level here. A Latin writer, Cornelius Galus, says, Worse than any wound is to wish to die and yet not be able to do so. And then you think, well, if, if, they, if it's this bad, why don't they kill themselves? And I like R.H. Uh, Lenski's quote. He says, The idea that the unsealed, ungodly, deluded might kill themselves is foreign to the picture. It is a well-known fact that despite all their wishing to be dead, when the most painful curse of their delusion strikes them like scorpion stings, the ungodly never have the courage to commit mass suicide. Interesting. So this is evil torture against those that are not sealed. Isn't it times like this when we uh, really appreciate the hope and the security that we have in Christ? Like I can read, when I read this and study Revelation countless times, I am so grateful that I'm God's. I am so grateful that He called me into the kingdom. And that, that anything that comes my way is limited by the sovereign hand of God and it is for my good. But there's so many things that I won't face in the eternity to come because of my security in Christ. So let's finish our passage here in 7 through 12. Rather than reading it all, I'll just take it uh, verse by verse. Now we have the locusts in appearance. Verse 7, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. Again, picture a grasshopper. Uh, on their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. And their teeth like lion's teeth. Again, I do not expect to see a creature like this. It's symbolic. There's an Arabian proverb that says, Locusts have the thigh of a camel, legs of an ostrich, wings of an eagle, breast of a lion, and a tail like Vipers. So we have a multifaceted demonic being here. Uh, and each of these descriptions communicate characteristics of it. And this imagery is borrowed somewhat from Joel chapter 2. And it, when, when Joel actually compares a literal invasion of locusts, and he describes them like an army, and they're fierce, and you can't fight them off, and they're destroying us, and there's nothing we can do. They're just here, and they're going to have their way and do what they came to do, and they have invaded us. And they're like galloping horses, and, and the buzzing winds are like the sounds of chariot wheels here. That's how Joel described it. So the demons released from the abyss, they're ready for battle. Nothing can stop them. The crowns on their head is a symbol that they will be victorious. 
They will serve the purpose that they've been given, the power that they've been given. They've got teeth like lions, meaning they can devour anything. Uh, They have hair like a woman, meaning that there's some sort of allure to them. They use that allure or attractiveness uh, to evil ends. The face like a human indicates human intelligence. They can think, problem solve. Uh, They're wise, they're powerful, they're crafty. And it's also sobering to think about this passage in this way. If If we refuse to believe in Christ, and we try to find a friend in evil or Satan, some camaraderie ship, as if we're not gods, then whose are we? This is a sobering reminder. Now, who is Satan unleashed upon? It's the ungodly unleashed upon the ungodly. These are the unrepentant. These are the demonic evil beings unleashed, in this case, not against God's people, what we're used to. This is Satan um, wreaking havoc upon those that also refuse to believe in God and give God any glory. So there's, there's no safe place, there's no friendship to be had with any kind of evil power. And this goes on for five months. Verses 9 and 10, they had breastplates like, uh, they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions or power to hurt people for my five months is in their tails. And this is a basic description of the Assyrian army, which was known for their brutality. And in that day and time, nobody could defeat that army. They were a world power. And this is how they were known, their breastplates and so forth, their, their armor for battle. Of course, the whole thing draws our attention to spiritual warfare. That's what this is. It's spiritual warfare. It's the enemy unleashed upon mankind on the earth. It's the battles that we fight. Now, because the enemy has already, the star has already fallen, it means that he's here already. I don't know when this particular time will be. Is, is it, just, is it uh, dished out throughout the ages between the advents as God's wrath is? Or will there be a specific time where only unbelievers are targeted. You know, is, is it happening now? Has it already happened? I don't, I don't know all that, but this is spiritual warfare, plain as, as we can see it. Uh, demonic beings are out there. They want to find their way into our heads, our thoughts, our lives. They want to control our emotions. They want us to desire evil. And we know that evil brings destruction. We were reminded this morning about the covenant and blessings and curses. When we do evil, we bring curses upon ourselves. So it it rages. It's a colorful way. It's a symbolic way to describe spiritual combat. But this is what it is. The godly can withstand it. The godly can withstand it because we have been preserved by Christ. The evil fall prey to this kind of spiritual warfare. When we read in Ephesians about the armor of God, 
It's not just fun toys. This is real stuff in real battles. How we can, God has equipped us and given us the ability to fight off the powers of demonic forces that have been unleashed in this world. And finally, verse 11, they have a king over them as the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek he is Apollyon. Of course, that is the destroyer. Now in real life, I understand that uh, a swarm of locusts, they don't have a leader. Unlike a beehive with the, with the queen bee that's running things, they just devastate. They just, they just group in swarms and they devastate whatever is in their path. These locusts have a king over them and that is Satan. Jesus calls him the prince of this world. Paul calls him the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Other names we find in Scripture are the devil, the enemy, the adversary, the serpent, the dragon, deceiver, accuser, evil one, Beelzebub, Belial, and here he is called the destroyer. So those are names that character that characterize what he is all about. He's a rebel. Uh, he's a self-appointed leader who rules the dynamic forces that have subjected themselves to him. And whether we realize it or not, before we came to Christ, that's who we served. Scripture makes it clear there's not like this middle ground that we like to create in our minds. Well, you know, I certainly wouldn't serve a beast like that, but I'm not serving God either. And Scripture makes it clear that if we're not serving God, the reason we're not is because we're under demonic influence and we love our sin more than we love our God. And Satan is behind all of that to rob and destroy from God's kingdom. So he is the destroyer. He is the exact opposite. What is Jesus? He's the Savior. He comes and he saves. He carries the little lambs and he leads us to the green pastures and the still waters. Satan is the exact opposite. He wants to destroy us, not save us. He wants to lead us away from safe places and the blessings of God. Do we want to be destroyed by evil? Or do we want to be saved by the Savior that God has sent in Jesus Christ? This may sound foreign and it's weird, these creatures, but this is our story. This is our reality. This is the life we live in. Every morning we wake up and we go to bed in this world and there are evil forces battling and fighting and they want our harm. Now I love where I live out here in rural Virginia. I love my church family and it is relatively a safe place to live. You know, the crime rate and so forth isn't what it might be in other parts of the world. I like that there's not a lot of traffic on the roads either. But the enemy doesn't, doesn't like lay off of rural areas. Those kind of demographics. See, if we're, if we're here and we're a church of the living God and we're going to sing praise to Him and hail Him every day and, and hopefully every Sunday we're being more and more committed to serve Him and love Him and obey Him, that's not what Satan wants. So this is our story, our reality. This is the narrative that we live in. And I 
hope and trust and pray that as we seep and saturate ourselves in, in God's word, that it will just every Sunday, every day, drive us to God, drive us to God, drive us to put all of our faith and our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, speaking of putting our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and being a force for light, we have an opportunity to host guys' retreats. Noah, if you would come forth, I guess you're going you're gonna to head it out. And I just want to say that I had an opportunity to attend the guys' retreat once again this year. And I'm so proud of the leaders um, that offered us leadership. All those that gave a talk and, and spoke out of uh, Timothy, Second Timothy. They just did a great job at challenging us to walk in the light. So Noah, come and share with us about that.